Welcome to Microdose Psychedelic Insights, powered by The Conscious Fund. This is the Sci-Fi series, discovering the cutting-edge science and research in psychedelic medicine. Thank you all so much for joining us for another exciting episode of the Sci-Fi Podcast, where we talk to leading industry experts, clinicians, and thought leaders about the mystery that is psychedelic science. Today, I'm joined by Sam and Dr. Mandel uh, of the ketamine clinics in Los Angeles. I'm really excited for this uh, for this podcast episode. I know ketamine therapeutics has been a really important part of the psychedelic renaissance as a whole. And uh, I think that Dr. Mandel, you have some really, really exciting things to share with us and uh, Sam about your guys' practice over uh, um, in, in LA. So without further ado, I think it'd be great if you, Dr. Mandel, could tell us a little bit more about yourself and your practice and, you know, uh, what brought you guys here uh, with us to talk today. Wow, that's a great, great intro. I really like the mystery that is psychedelic medicine. Thanks. Uh, I appreciate it. Yeah, there's, uh, there's, a, there's a lot in that one little phrase. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's true. Psychedelics, uh, since... Uh, I was in college, but I turned away from psychedelics. Uh, I went to graduate school in clinical psychology, was working on my dissertation when I had a chance to go to medical school. I went to medical school and decided to do anesthesiology. And I was an anesthesiologist, I still am, a board certified anesthesiologist, but I did that primarily for many years. But I was continued to be interested in mood disorders. And I was particularly struck by the use of ketamine as an anesthetic, because it was approved by the FDA in 1970 as an anesthetic. And it actually was among the most widely used anesthetics in the world, the most widely used, for about three decades. It's an amazing anesthetic. Uh, this is important to mention because it really differentiates it from so many of the other synthetic uh, psychedelic substances and botanicals. But anyway, in the 90s, uh, guys returning home from war fronts in Iraq and Afghanistan and having surgery had successful anesthetics with ketamine. And one of the things that was noticed was that they had um, way better improvement in their symptoms of PTSD. This was totally non-intuitive, a total surprise. Nobody could get it. It took close to a decade for people to realize that it was the ketamine it was having the impact, not just as an anesthetic, but having an impact on these, these actually war wounded, not only in a physical sense, but in a, in a psychological trauma sense, in, in ameliorating their traumas. And it was amazing. I, um, long story short, and you can come back if I'm leaving out things you'd like to hear more about, but uh, I got wind of this in the late single digits, read about it, was incredulous, was doing anesthesia and using a lot of ketamine for patients. And I said, I just have to try this. Uh, it's so fit into my love of psychology and my knowledge of anesthesiology. And uh, around 13, I started doing a few infusions on, on friends and acquaintances, or actually mostly the the near and dear of friends and acquaintances who were among the walking wounded, who had tried everything else, including uh, uh, ECT, including uh, TMS, which was new at the time, but was available, and every kind of SSRI and SNRI and atypical and antipsychotic and mood stabilizer, the whole nine yards. And uh, so some of these people really were very despairing. I, I don't know if people realize how absolutely awful it is to be depressed. It's not like your puppy's sick or your girlfriend isn't answering your calls. It's like, well, in, in Australian, the idiom is the black dog. And it's like you got a big, black, hairy, fuzzy dog laying on top of you. Not touchy-feely, cuddly, but kind of blanketing and cutting everything out. You feel worthless, you feel hopeless, you feel helpless, you don't have any pleasure. There's no energy, there's very little focus. It's awful. So these people were willing to try this and I was very interested in seeing if it would really work the way I was reading it worked. 
I was astounded. It's just amazing. It really does reduce, reverse depression and suicidality and PTSD big time. Like the literature at the time was just beginning to report around 70% benefit. In our clinic, we were able to reach to, to achieve 83%. I can tell you why later if, um, if you're interested because that difference is continued. Anyway, in 2014, uh, I opened the clinic and being more clinical than business-wise, I invited my son, Sam, who was um, available at the time to help to run the practice. And here we are, seven years later. Wow, that is incredible. Uh, everything, everything that you have talked about and have touched on is, is is so exciting and fascinating. I, I hope we can dive back into all of them. Uh, so if I'm not mistaken, then you you were among the, the very first clinicians to have discovered uh, uh, that sub-anesthetic doses, or I guess the, the way you're talking about is even uh, anesthetic doses seem to have had this this profoundly antidepressive effect on 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 people, and I think that's pretty remarkable. Do I do I have that right? Were you one of the first people to really have discovered this therapeutic use of ketamine? I am among the very first in the nation, Garb, to have applied it to patients. I didn't discover it. Right. That credit oh, right. people. What right. I did was I used it on patients, which was considered really, really out there at the time. Yes. Yeah, so yeah. Started the practice in early 2014. You know, most people considered it really experimental, though that wasn't really an accurate perception because at that time there was actually, you know, fairly significant amount of clinical research done by leading institutions proving the efficacy of ketamine and as Dr. Mandel touched on at the beginning, you know, being an FDA approved anesthetic that had been used quite widely since 1970 um, has a really, really great safety profile. And we have a lot of information and a lot of data about the medicine itself. And there were a number of studies proving its efficacy for depression. So there was no question in, in our minds of, uh, it being something really worth pursuing and that it was not going to cause harm. And it was, you know, had really, really remarkable results that we were reading about and that we saw firsthand. Um, but still the general perception, even within the medical community and even within mental health was that this was a pretty bizarre and <laughs> kind of experimental thing to be doing. I want to throw yeah. in and, and Go ahead. that um, it's not the same dose and it's not given by the same route of administration. There are almost three separate populations. There's the anesthetic population that receives ketamine as a bolus, as a lump. There's the uh, population that people loosely call of abuse or of recreation or psychopaths and seekers. They usually take ketamine up their nose as an insufflation as a powder and in, in one or a multiple interrupted series of insufflations. Then there's the therapeutic uh, community and that's giving ketamine intravenously as a gradual continuous infusion. There are therapists that are also giving it IM and mm -hmm. they're giving it intra intranasally uh, these don't work as well, but they're widely used for reasons we can talk about later, if you like. But yeah, you touched on something um, in your in your question, uh, Gaurav, uh, which is that, uh, yes, there were some mental health benefits starting to, you know, become apparent when ketamine was used as an anesthetic in anesthetic doses. And that early, um, some of those early observations led to the research which was conducted on ketamine for depression and for mental health, which is typically done with a half a milligram of ketamine per kilogram of body weight over 40 minutes, which is a sub-anesthetic dose, a much smaller dose uh, than people uh, do get for anesthesia or for analgesic relief. Um, and our protocol has 
kind of been built upon that and is a little bit different from that. Um, but that's typically what you see um, in the research. Wow, that's really, really fascinating. And, you know, I've said it a few times on my show before, and I really like the, the saying or the phrase that ketamine has been the Trojan horse for psychedelic medicine today, you know, in that it's been used for in, in clinical practice for uh, five, six decades, and its safety and efficacy as an anesthetic, of course, um, but its safety has been very strongly established. But then it has these psychedelic properties that are also now being, um, are, are, are beginning to kind of encourage its use uh, in mental health treatment, you know? And I think that's really, really fascinating that you're in the field that you're in and working with ketamine of all things, because I think it's opened up avenues, not only for psychedelic medicine in the sense that, uh, you know, the, these drugs are being used, uh, that psychedelic drugs are being able to be used, but also the fact that psychedelic assisted psychotherapy and, you know, that there are clinics out there now that integrate the psychotherapy model with the uh, experience that ketamine provides uh, and, and how effective that is for mental health treatment and various mental illnesses uh, that I think is going a long way for the whole industry and is really being really efficacious and, and really profound uh, for uh, the host of psychedelic drugs and uh, all the different ways that we're combining psychotherapy with that. So it's really exciting to hear about. Uh, and uh, really incredible of a story that you guys are beginning to tell me, you know, and, and share with the world. Uh, so I would love for you guys, yeah, just to comment a little bit more on that. I mean, you know, ketamine has set a really bold precedent and has uh, really, I feel like, started to open the, the floodgates for other psychedelic medicines to be used in the treatment of mental illness. And so what do you guys have to say about the Trojan horse and, and ketamine kind of playing that role for psychedelic medicine overall? It's thrilling to be uh, spearheading this movement of using chemicals to promote better mental health. I, I must just tell you, maybe it's a quibble, but the Trojan horse was a gift to an enemy <laughs> trying to entice them to take it. And once inside the gates, it, it was an invention. <laughs> so I'm, I, I, ketamine is not like that. Ketamine is really <laughs> Well, you're right. It, it, it's not a sneaky way to ruin things, uh, which is what the, what, what, what the Athenians intended, intended for Troy when they gave them this really amazing large statue of a horse. There's no yeah. secrets you're inside. Right. So I love I, I love the the visual is great, but the actuals are a little different. Ketamine is in fact known, and one of the things I'm very enthused about the other. We really are excited about other uh, psychedelics or entheogens. Is a question of whether MDMA is a psychedelic? Some people even say uh, ketamine is not a true psychedelic. Who knows what that means? Uh, psilocybin, I think everyone agrees. So the synthetics and the botanicals are really coming on and they have tremendous promise as an aid to mental health. But ketamine is the only one for which we have any substantial data as to safety as well as efficacy. Yeah, exactly. I, I completely agree. Uh, and so I think that's what I, perhaps that's where the uh, idea really from on the one hand is that, um, you know, uh, from a safety standpoint, right? Like, I, I think it's speaking to the powers that be and policymakers and, and the idea of prohibition, I think is what's really being attacked, you know, is that, you know, look how safe and and effective that this this medicine is, and the fact that it has psychedelic properties. I think the only people being tricked are the people that were ever trying to, you know, uh, keep psychedelic medicine from the masses to, to found how quickly and how efficaciously uh, ketamine has been shown to 
to work for acute suicidality. Like in just an hour, I think I remember reading a study in, in PubMed, um, suicidal ideation and tendencies were able to be reduced uh, uh, very significantly. And so I would love for you to comment on why do you think compared to other modes and, and drugs of treatment, what, why is ketamine so effective and effective so quickly uh, compared to these other treatments that we have available today? Well, I'm going to tell you what I think, but remember I'm telling you an opinion, and although I am very interested in science and I'm an avid consumer of science, I'm not a researcher. I'm telling yeah. you, I, I, I read the studies, but... Um, People talk about ketamine as, 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 and its effect on glutamate uh, as a neurotransmitter, and I think that's very important. But I think the dramatic, rapid, amazing effects on suicidality are probably due to ketamine putting the default mode network at rest. The default mode network is a, is a disparate group of uh, anatomical foci in the brain that communicate with one another and that have a great to do with consciousness and attention. And mm -hmm. a side, a side arm of that is all the bullying voices that you hear that are judging how you look and whether you smiled well or looked inauthentic. And are you standing in good posture? And does, does she like you and not like you? And all this, 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 noise, this radio stations that we're listening to in our heads all the time that are really screwing with our sense of ourselves. I think the ketamine rapidly puts that to sleep. And I think it enables us to manage our bullying voices. It doesn't turn them off, but it gets the volume down to the point where they're no longer able to bully us. And I think that's why it works as quickly as it does in that regard. Well, you know, Ketamine is um, really interesting in that it's working on a kind of biochemical or neurochemical level with the processes that are occurring in the brain that are very unique to ketamine, which, you know, Dr. Mandel can speak about in much greater detail and with a much more comprehensive understanding than I. Um, and then there's also the experiential aspect of ketamine, which is what a lot of people focus on if not exclusively, then mostly when it comes to ketamine and other psychedelic medicines. Um, but it's not the, and, it, and it's very, very important, but it's not the only thing. So, it, you know, the two come together to produce a superior treatment outcome uh, compared to traditional treatments. So on the neurochemical level, you know, ketamine does a lot of things that we are starting to understand and a lot of things that we don't really understand yet. But some of those that we know a little bit about are that it's a BDNF stimulator, which is, you know, brain-derived neurotropic factor. It can essentially help to create a physical growth in the brain in areas that are involuted due to um, depression. Um, that are actually, you know, parts of the brain that are not functioning as well, that have actually shrunken and not, um, not uh, responding as well. Uh, when ketamine uh, enters the system, it can actually plump them up, uh, can increase dendrite density and connectivity um, and overall enhance neuroplasticity. So it's not just a, a Band-Aid. It's, um, it's actually causing uh, growth and, and uh, enhanced functioning in the brain. Wow, I love that. That's really fascinating because it must be several different levels of um, levels of therapeutic action i guess that must be taking place because on the one hand there's something happening very quickly because for someone to change their perspective on whether wanting to live or die within an hour's time is uh really incredible and then also there seems to be some sort of like this window of neuroplasticity and this talk about new formations of 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 neurons and neural networks uh, I mean may, maybe I don't understand the time frame by which this takes place and how much that affects our willingness or how we feel uh, you know is our attitude towards life and death 
I, I imagine it takes in that that mechanism may take longer than an hour. Um, You're quite right. But, right. So there, so there must be quite quite a few different things going on, and so the, this multimodal, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, this multimodal set of um, behaviors or actions that are taking place in the in the brain is really truly incredible, <laughs> you know. And and what a well, what a fascinating sort of uh, uh, field of research to be in, and and uh, and drug to work with in in a really vulnerable set of patients, you know. Um, and so I know you said you're, you're not a researcher. Uh, I I think to some level, you know, you, you're enthralled you know a, a very enthralled to be able to be working with this you know in practice uh, with your patients so i'd love to hear a little bit more about that from both of you you know uh what are some of the th the, the most in in interesting things that you guys have seen uh since your practice has started um and you know just the stories that we've all heard um about ketamine's efficacy and uh, how quickly and how rapidly it works uh yeah i mean from from the day to day and from the perspective that you guys have you could just share a little bit more about that i'm sure you have some really profound and, and interesting things to share we have lots of stories um i love to just clarify that we are not researchers but um basic science research. yeah but we We're do very much research. yeah we we <laughs> do um you know, our, our avid readers, we're very, our practice is very evidence-based. Dr. Mandel really reads all of the, the clinical research out there. And we do uh, really like uh, quantifiable data. We track a lot in our practice. We track patients and, and their progress before, during, and after treatment with a number of assessments. And we're always sensitive to not making that more cumbersome for uh, the patient because our primary focus is to be a treatment center and to help people and to provide relief. And we find that um, keeping track of things um, with the measures that we use can be very conducive to that and also, you know, a very important part of that process. So we are um, focused on measuring data, uh, despite the fact that we definitely aren't conducting, you know, formal research. Yeah, evidence-based. That's the, that's the term that, you know, I really like to use myself as well when uh, you know, talking about how important it is to approach, you know, in my case, uh, branding, you know, and, and putting together, be it blogs or podcasts, uh, you know, and, and working with scientists and researchers in the field. Um, but also, you know, talking about actually approaching a practice and, and the way that you guys take the notes and take uh careful readings of how you know you're just approaching the 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 way that you practice medicine and how that can be improved and how that can be taken to the next level i think is really truly fascinating um where are some things that what that what are some areas of uh your academy practice you see uh really ex expanding and and being the next uh you know what give, give me a give me a moment to gather my gather my thoughts uh, i want to redo the last well this question basically that that i'm asking you guys um we're at 24 minutes i'm just gonna have a text edit document open up that i usually do when i record these um and i'll just have connor go back and all right so 24 minutes okay uh, I'm going to ask you the thing about taking an evidence-based approach. So yeah, we are very evidence-based. So, yeah, I know you guys just mentioned yeah, that you take a very evidence-based approach to the to your practice. And I would just love for you to you know, talk a little bit more uh, about that. You know, I know you said you're not researchers, but to some degree, you know, uh, taking that evidence-based approach to what you're doing, um, it, it brings a strong research component into into the way you guys approach your practice. So if you could talk a little bit more about that, I think it would be interesting to our listeners. Okay, to clarify, we are researchers. We are not, <laughs> All right. we're not basic science researchers. We don't have okay. rats, we don't have monkeys, we don't uh, slice brains open, but we get <laughs> patients continually about right. their uh, psychological parameters. We're not going on hunches, we're going on testing and retesting. Uh, right. we, you asked about how, what we're doing 
with ketamine that's kind of new and different. Uh, yeah. In addition to treating uh, people at the extremes of age and getting right. results with adolescents and with older people, uh, more and more we're seeing um, postpartum depression patients and patients wow. with disorders and helping those as dramatically as we're helping depressives and, and bipolars. We're also um, really interested in the newer, um, uh, you know, medicines that are rapidly becoming more available as, as the evidence supports their use, like the psychedelics such as MDMA, psilocybin, and others that are coming that are not yet um, available, but you know, hopefully will be soon. And uh, there's really encouraging early findings with them, as you know, and as I'm sure most of the audience knows, and being evidence-based, we'll look to see as that develops. And as long as there's a good basis for it and they're safe and effective, we'll be using them in our practice. Um, something else that I, I touched on earlier about the typical protocol that we do differently that Dr. Mandel really pioneered is a 55-minute infusion, not a 40-minute infusion, and at a slightly higher rate. So as opposed to half a milligram, maybe more like 0 0.6, 0 0.7 milligrams per kilogram of body weight. And because it's a slightly higher rate over a slightly longer period of time, um, it really does produce uh, better outcomes. And that's just one of the things that we do and that Dr. Mandel has pioneered uh, differently than um, the typical uh, protocol. Um, we also use a digital infusion pump uh, as opposed to an IV bag. So we can very precisely fine tune uh, doses and adjust them not only uh, from one infusion to the next, but even during an infusion. Um, this level of personalization and flexibility is another reason why we get about 83% success in our clinic for mood disorder patients, whereas the literature is consistently around 70 or 71%. Uh, and there are other things that we do that I think set us apart, but those are some of the key differentiators. That's really, incredible um and you know that the fact the literature just for people in the audience that um might not be fully aware just getting 70 percent is groundbreaking and and radically uh, successful compared Absolutely. to uh, yes. mental health treatments you know uh that that this field has seen in the last several decades uh and then the fact that you know your clinic is getting 83 percent is just um it's unfathomable, especially to, to people and to, to researchers that would have been studying something like ketamine, maybe like 10 or so, sorry, studying mental health treatments and diagnoses, uh, you know, several decades ago. Um, that's really unheard of. So it's really quite incredible uh, that, you know, we're in the place that we're in now and that we are seeing the success that we have now. And it's even more incredible and really uh, admirable, you know, that there's people out there like like you, you guys that are even still pushing the envelope and trying to take things to the next level and trying to see how we can take what we have and um, modulate what factors we can from that evidence-based approach like we talked about to be able to make things even more successful you know and make things even better for the the patient that comes in that's really struggling with the most difficult to, and, and and most challenging to deal with of uh, human conditions of all right yeah i mean it's it's amazing to be a part of you know just to put it in a context for people and i'm glad you're pointing that out i mean a lot of the traditional treatment options are around 35 percent effective so for ketamine to come along in the research and be at 70, 71% when uh, almost all of the studies have required that they're essentially seeing a treatment resistant population. They're seeing people who have tried and uh, not gotten adequate relief from at least you know, two or three other treatments, most of them many more, uh, then the benefit is, is pretty remarkable indeed. And, and in our clinic at you know 83%, even that much more significant, and we also see almost exclusively treatment resistant patients. Over time, uh, we're starting to see more people come to ketamine and find us sooner in their treatment journey uh, without it being a quote, last resort, which is where it really started out as. You know, in 2014, the kind of general uh, consensus was uh, among most people, only do ketamine if you've done literally everything else out there, including ECT. 
And now, definitely <laughs> before ECT, for most people who know even a little bit about it, and a, a lot of people are saying, maybe, well, maybe we should have someone do ketamine before they've tried their 10th, you know, antidepressant medication. Maybe they need to spend five years playing around with different meds and doses uh, and, and suffering before they come to ketamine. Absolutely. No, I'm, I'm really happy that you brought that up, you know, because um, considering the safety profile of ketamine alone, uh, it, there's no reason, right? Considering the safety profile and then how fast the, the, the therapeutic benefits come to be, uh, there's no reason. I, I feel we should be waiting so long, you know, um, especially <laughs> considering it should be a last resort. And then, you know, having come from working in the cannabis field, uh, I, I find myself echoing that sentiment now, you know, in, in that I, that's very similar. And with cannabis, you know, the argument was, you know, why are we waiting for people for this to be a last resort treatment for so many people? And and now I I, I want to be careful in drawing that parallel um, because I think there are a lot of advantages ketamine has to cannabis um, in the treatment of mental health, uh, and and I, I think that there are uh, some interesting parallels and contrasts between the two in general. And I do I do write a blog or um, a column for Microdose every month, psychedelics versus cannabis, where I like to, you know, make those contrasts and comparisons. Um, but when it comes to just safety and nothing else, uh, I do find that to be a very interesting parallel, you know, in that there are these treatments and, you know, when a cool, new, when, when an effective new treatment comes along that maybe seems like it's uh, radical or out of left field, it, it's uh, often looked at as like, well, we should try everything else first and then, you know, try this as a last resort. Um, but we might soon see a day where this could be a first line treatment, you know, especially considering how uh, ineffective or how, yeah, well, ineffective SSRIs adjusting to the side, the side effects and a, a withdrawal phase. And it's just a lot, you know, for people to, uh, a lot for people to deal with, you know, and so I think it's really profound that there's something like ketamine out there, and that we don't necessarily you know, uh, have to hopefully leave it to be a, a last resort treatment for people and, and it can be used earlier on. Yeah, uh, Gaurav, I know Dr. Manel is a great person to speak more to that. I just want to clarify that um, it, it started out as a last resort in a lot of people's minds in 2014 when we started the practice. Mm -hmm. It's definitely not that anymore, not today from anyone who knows even a little bit about what's been going on. Um, right. I think it is rapidly moving towards uh, first line um, or right up there, but I know Dr. Manel can speak more to that. It's definitely moved up the, the chain from a, a, a um, fringy medicine of last resort to uh, among the first things you go to for profound depression and especially for suicidality. Ketamine is the medicine for suicidality today. There is nothing best, there's nothing better, there's no Let's see if this works, and if it doesn't, we'll try ketamine. And it's amazing. And uh, the problem with ketamine, if you really want to know, <laughs> ketamine is so uh, infrequently mentioned, is because we get most of our drug information in the United States from drug companies. Mm -hmm. Literally. The drug companies give us the information about the drugs they sell. Ketamine, there's no money in ketamine for a drug company. It's a generic. There's no profit in it whatsoever. So they're not very interested in, in touting it. We finally, finally, after years of begging, have gotten the insurance industry, uh, at least in one instance, Blue Cross of, of, of Massachusetts is now covering ketamine infusion treatments. But they say you have to fail four other traditional antidepressants before they can approve you for ketamine. And what the hell is that about? This is wow. medicine that works better. Why would you insist that a patient have to undergo four treatments, mostly with drugs that cause a loss of libido, cause a gain in weight, uh -huh. sleeping pattern, that are known to sometimes engender suicidal thinking? Why would you have to go through four of them to try a safe, quick drug 
that may help you. And if it does, it's going to help you right now. Yeah, if you do a side by comparison, it's really ridiculous. I mean, ketamine has no long-term side effects. Uh, it works incredibly quickly, uh, anywhere from a couple hours to a couple of days in most cases. It and it provides a better quality of relief. This is a really important distinction that a lot of people look over. You know, a lot of these traditional drugs kind of numb people out. And we hear from patients all the time, they took, you know, X um, antidepressant. And yes, their depression was not as bad. They were able to get out of bed in the morning after in some cases, but uh, they were miserable and uh, they definitely didn't experience pleasure or, or joy. They ju it just kind of helped them along, uh, kind of barely did the minimum. It numbed them out. Uh, and they, but it numbed them out. Um, ketamine really helps to restore pleasure and joy and, and give people a sense of self. Uh, in many, many cases in a way that they haven't experienced for, for years. So it's a faster, better, safer medicine with a better quality of relief. And yet um, a lot of people are still not yet informed enough. And I, we feel that that's the biggest issue in most cases is the educational gap, even within the medical community. And then for the typical patient of what ketamine really does, how it works and how it compares to these traditional treatments. That's really incredible. And one of the things you had mentioned that I that had just come to mind is what well, well we we talked about the the insurance companies and how you know they require you to have uh, failed these different the use of these different SSR or these different treatments before trying the ketamine. And you talked about how you know, ketamine actually lets you experience joy instead of making you just numb to the negative emotions. And then I, I feel like I bought this stuff from the last two or three episodes of sci-fi, but I can't help but do it every time is that, uh, you know, that Hopkins study that's been a, a landmark study uh, in, in the psychedelic movement uh, talked about how psilocybin has, has been four times more efficacious uh, than traditional SSRIs in the treatment of depression. And I think what's so interesting about that finding is that when they looked at brain activity, they found that the the brain activity in the amygdala was increased. Now, why that was so important is that with SSRIs, the amygdala, first of all, is responsible for, uh, generally responsible for the negative emotions and our fears and where we kind of experience those, uh, those emotions. And so when the SSRIs go in there and they reduce activity in this area of our brain, um, and cause that sort of numbing effect, it, it, it allows us to sort of escape or be shielded from the, that uh, unpleasantness or discomfort or flat out misery uh, that comes from, you know, that, that people can experience. But with the psilocybin, what they found is that it increased activity in that area of our brain. And what they deduced was, since these patients showed such incredible and profound improvements in their depression scales after the treatment, is that the patients were actually finding ways to confront their negative emotions and to confront that which they were afraid of and their fears. Uh, and what's interesting with the ketamine as well is that you know, I'm not personally aware of how ketamine uh, affects the uh, activity in the amygdala of the brain, um, but it does seem that on the whole, psychedelic medicine, it, it does a much better job at and mood disorders because it doesn't just act like a band-aid and it doesn't just act to temporarily shield us from what's uh, bothering us and doesn't just work at mere symptom removal, but to some degree acts on uh, acts in a way that can help us be happier and more joyous long-term. Uh, if you could speak on that, and if there really is a correlation between, you know, um, and the Hopkins study and the, the philosophy behind that, and, you know, ketamine's uh, ability to be so profoundly therapeutic, I think it'd be really fascinating for you to comment on that. Well, it's definitely the case that the ketamine is an activator, whereas um, the other... Wow talked about are uh, depressants and they're depressing. they're depressing the areas of the brain that cause you to be depressed 
But the opposite of depression isn't happiness. The opposite of depression is vitality. Mm. And psilocybin is known to do, although it's still very much in a work in progress. And what ketamine is known to do is to be an activator. You become passionate again. You become curious again. You become attentive again. You start experiencing sensory input in a fresh way, in a renewed, vivid way. That the, the, the pastels become primary colors again. Yeah. Wow. I like that. Oh, sorry. A lot. The pastels become primary colors again. Uh, that's got to be a quote. <laughs> that's amazing. I like that. Thank you. It's, uh, it's, it's unique. And, uh, what you were saying, I think is really important. I mean, look, there's no magic pill. There's no magic solution for trauma and for the, the, the really tough things that people have experienced and are going through and any avoidance, um, you know, what, what you resist persists, right? So mm. try to run and avoid or numb, whether you're numbing with an antidepressant pill or alcohol or pot or whatever it might be, you can't escape these things. And psychedelics do tend to facilitate an inward journey to confront them in a constructive way. We've had patients under, you know, having a ketamine infusion who have worked through difficult situations dilemmas, issues in their lives, or even just revisited traumas from an objective perspective. And this really promotes healing. Um, think, something that I always say that really separates ketamine from the other psychedelics is how you retain your executive function. And there's generally speaking, and obviously this depends on the dose that you're getting, but generally in the doses that we're using, there's a, there's a sense of awareness that people uh, retain. There's a sense that they're having an experience, a, a sense of, a, you know, of awareness of self undergoing an experience, whereas LSD or psilocybin, a lot of the time, people are just really kind of in another world, and they don't even really have that, that um, executive function as intact. Obviously, people can take you know, hero doses of ketamine and there can be ego death and you hear about that stuff too. We don't do that clinically for, for depression. And so when someone's having an infusion, they usually have an ability to work through things and have that awareness that can be very, very therapeutic. Wow. That's really fascinating. I, I you know, I can't help but be enthralled by the fact that uh, I just find it really curious and fun, you know, that you guys are uh you know son and son and father working together you know in uh in in all of this and you guys both have such really engaging passionate perspectives about what you guys do uh i just wanted to hear from each of you you know like what's that like working with uh, sam your dad and steven with your son and um uh, do you guys have nerdy conversations like we're having right now around the dinner table like what's that like i think we're we did not start out this way we had wow. the father-son issues and we had some of them pretty intensely. And as the years have gone on, we have become much more, I, I won't speak we, I have become much more um, self-knowing through therapy, through meditation, uh, through spirituality, through uh, access provided by uh, medication. I have become much more self knowledge full of self-knowledge and much more appreciative and grateful for what i am able to do in terms of uh being of service to others it's really uh we 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 love relieving depression we love relieving suicidality it's um i, I was giving a, a i was on a round table the other day and a a young woman from Canada who's recently started a program for indigenous people said, kind of in parenthesis, you know, uh, I love my job, but this is so profoundly affecting for me and for others that I'd probably do it for free. And I, I have bills to pay and I have a staff of 10, so I, I'm not offering to do it for free, but I am saying I really got what she was saying. It's really so gratifying 
to be able to provide this access for people. And the vast majority of them are enormously enhanced from the encounter. A handful of them don't benefit and virtually none of them are harmed. It's a privilege. Wow, that was an incredible answer. Uh, Sam, I'd love to give you a, a, a moment to answer as well. I'd like to work with your dad. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, as as he said, you know, we have had our challenges, and um, you know, over the years, our our relationship hasn't always been great. And you know, even at the time that we started working together um, to move forward this shared mission of relieving suffering and making a positive difference for people, um, we weren't even necessarily, uh, you know, super super close at that time. But we came together over this shared passion and interest. And it's been just, you know, one of the most amazing things about all of our story and our journey through the clinic is us working together and uh, becoming closer and really becoming friends and partners in addition to father and son and really cultivating a relationship that's you know, incredibly meaningful to me. And I know it is to, to my father now as well. And, you know, ever since I was a little kid, literally, I always wanted to make a positive difference in the world. I really felt strongly about having an impact and making it uh, on a large scale. And I have had a lot of different interests over the years. And this is, you know, by far been the most gratifying and the most rewarding. And, it's just a, it's a special opportunity. It's a privilege. It's not something I take for granted. And being able to do it with my dad and uh, to talk about it together and the, the trust and love and respect that's there in in doing it is uh, is is really is, is special. Wow, that's really amazing. I I'm really happy I asked that question to you both and. Uh, uh, there's only been a couple of moments uh, in recording sci-fi. I feel like so far, at least, uh, I feel like I've gotten a, a little emotional hearing an answer uh, from from my guests, and and I, I have to give it to you guys. That was one of them, you know. Uh, really, truly remarkable. Um, I hope that one day, um, it, you know, well. Uh, I will say that my dad and I have not had the, the closest of relationships, the father and son relationships. And um, I, I know from a mental health perspective that, that he's had a lot of challenges. Uh, I, I, I can see the benefits ketamine has had in a lot of people's lives. And, uh, you know, even I've been fortunate enough to uh, ha have had infusions before. Um, and and it's, it's provided me with a really unique perspective on uh, you know just the work that I do in, in the field uh, I would love if at some point my dad gets infusions and I think that he would really um, uh, if he falls in the percentage of patients that do benefit from them you know uh, I, I think they could go a long way for him um, but but yeah no it's really heartwarming to hear um, how much this has impacted both of your lives and uh, even more heartwarming to hear how it has sort of played an impact on you know your relationships with each other and how passionate you both are uh, about about working in this field it's really remarkable and really amazing so uh, before I ask any more questions for this the podcast I just wanted to say uh, as a person you know <laughs> thank you so much for the work that you guys do and and uh, I hope you guys keep doing it for a, a lot more years to come you know that's really amazing thank you um, thank you yeah yeah absolutely uh i i do have a few well uh I, a couple more questions and we're kind of nearing towards the end here to be honest you guys i could i could uh talk to you guys for hours and not run out of questions <laughs> um about what you guys do and so i hope that I can have you guys on my show again soon. Uh, maybe when you know the cameras and the technology is all working uh, well, uh, we, we can have you guys on it again in the very near future. Um, yeah, we love I, that. 
Good, good. I'm glad I would too. Um, yeah, I have one more question as far as like an impromptu off the top of my head, nerdy kind of science question. And then, you know, we, we can start to wrap it up. Um, you, like we mentioned, there's a percentage of patients that, that this treatment doesn't seem to have an impact on as far as improving depression and things go. And, and uh, you know, we have seen that it is so safe that those patients don't have to worry about any harm coming to them. Um, but why, why do you think that is, uh, and, and, you know, that some patients don't, have, don't see any benefit from ketamine therapy at all? And then what do you recommend to a patient that is, you know, it's in, in the position of suffering from acute suicidality and it's severe depression and, and they go and try something like ketamine after hearing about how uh, uh, incredibly therapeutic it is and how beneficial it is and, and it doesn't work for them. And have you guys, have you guys had to treat patients like, like that? And what do you tell them? That's a really, really good question. There isn't a solitary answer. The 17% who don't benefit are not a homogeneous group. Mm. I'll tell you some of them. First of all, you have to make sure that ketamine is done right. There are enough, there are a lot of people who jumped on this either because they really want to do good, and this is a, such a clear way to do good, or they really like the idea of cash flow and they want to sell this and they're not skilled. Those people may not be giving you ketamine in a way that most optimizes the chances of a good benefit. But to get back to your question, even with optimal care, there's about 17% that don't benefit. And that is not a solitary group. That includes people who will benefit from more traditional medicines. I've had a number of patients who tried everything, including uh, ECT and not benefited and not benefited from ketamine who have been put on um, monoamine oxidase inhibitors and have had a restoration of, of reasonable mood. Oh, wow. Uh, yep. I've had several wow. patients who didn't benefit, who were hypothyroid and we didn't know it. And when they would be made, the thyroid was made normal with medication, they were responsive. There are a number of middle-aged people, particularly males, but not exclusively males, who have such low testosterone that they're unresponsive to ketamine and boosting their testosterone into the normal range, not super normal range, but it, well into the normal range, start to respond to ketamine where they hadn't in the past. There are also a number of patients for whom some situational improvement in their lives helps them to start to respond to ketamine. We've had a number of patients who are substance abuse patients who are into opiates or alcohol who liked the ketamine, but it didn't help them to make better choices. And when they were able to abstain from other reasons, they got the strength and the focus and the concentration to continue their abstinence with the help of ketamine. Yeah, ketamine, you know, it's interesting. And this is like a little bit, um, I don't know if controversial is the best word, but it's kind of a topic within the treatment community and with people who are in recovery because, you know, people do misuse ketamine sometimes or they self-medicate with it or they use it recreationally or any one of the all of the above, however you want to label it. Um, but, uh, you know, people who are sober or in recovery, uh, they wonder, oh, am I going to have to, you know, reset my cravings? And when it's used in conjunction with the treatment program can actually be really, really helpful for people to stay sober and work their program. And of course, with, you know, a lot of substance abuse, people are using it to cope with trauma or depression or underlying challenges. So when ketamine helps to address those issues at the source, and helps people to feel better and to navigate and, and heal from uh, some of those traumas, um, naturally they don't feel as inclined to numb themselves out with substances. So it really kind of hits it from multiple angles. Um, pretty, pretty amazing. 
Yeah, it's really, uh, it's really interesting that you mentioned that because my next question was actually going to be about substance abuse and the fact that, you know, ketamine does happen to be one of the only drugs in the psychedelic toolkit, I suppose, uh, that sort of has that abuse potential and abuse liability to it. Um, but then it's interesting that you mentioned what you do, you know, because uh, you, you talked about how with the opiates to sort of uh, abstain uh, through other means. Now, those means may be a 12-step program or meditation or what have you, you know, and then revisit the ketamine. They're able to find some hope and find some ability to, uh, or, or find that the ketamine is uh, efficacious for them. And so, yeah, I, I, I did want you guys to comment on, you know, just that, the fact that, you know, ketamine has this ability to be abused and, you know, has been used as a party drug or in the rave scene or whatever. I want to clarify, though, that, you know, ketamine is not addictive. And the abuse of it or self-medication with it or recreational use of it is really overhyped. And while some people do use it in that way, it's not addictive or people don't develop a physical dependency upon it like an opioid or like alcohol or even nicotine. Um, some people use it as an escape, but not necessarily much differently than some people might use television or eating uh, you know, as an escape. There's not been a single patient that we've seen in seven years after about 13,000 infusions who has exhibited um, addictive behavior or had ketamine here and then wanted to come back every day or you know every week in a way that was concerning. Um, it's just not something we see. Even people who find the experience to be enjoyable or pleasurable often say, I don't really get why someone would want to do this outside of a clinical setting or I can't imagine doing this at a club or at someone's house. Um, and none of the negative side effects that you see in the, tr in, the, in the street use population come up in the clinic. So people who are doing 10, 15, 20 times the doses that we're providing for many years might have some cystitis or uh, um, irritability of the bladder. Um, they may have some cognitive impairment after doing 20 times the dose over years and years, about maybe half of them. But uh, we don't see any of that in uh, the clinical application of ketamine. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that's just another remarkable facet of ketamine and psychedelic drugs in general is that you're right. Uh, on, they're not physically addictive and that's really important uh, to note you know uh, and that yeah the the most damaging aspect of it physiologically does seem to only be that they're the, the the bladder issues that you know only do seem to surface after uh, very long periods of repeated use that you know really not ever present itself in the clinic and so you know of course it hasn't in, in your practice or really in anyone's practice that I, I seem to have spoken to or that we know of and that's great um, and so yeah it's a really remarkable tool in the toolkit uh, I, I'm curious what do you guys see in the future of ketamine therapeutics do you see analogs or drugs like uh, you know MXC was popular for a little while I don't know if you guys know about methoxetamine it was a designer drug from i think that was more popular in like the late 90s early 2000s uh, um that uh, produced a much longer i guess what people call the k-hole uh, it was described as the m-hole it, it you know <clears throat> uh was a, a much longer duration of action um and it was able to be used at incredibly low doses uh, so it, you know, did not have that bladder toxicity uh, component to it. Um, but just that being one example, do you, do you see uh, other analogs or other NMDA or therapeutics 
being a possibility? Do you see ketamine as uh, a drug that could be evolved or the field of ketamine therapy being evolved to include new drug candidates? Or do you think just what could be evolved are the other aspects of therapy, such as dose, uh, the time, for example, you guys found 55 minutes is more effective, you know, than the more traditional 40, 45 uh, minutes. You see those things as being more likely to be what is going to evolve in ketamine therapy. I think this is really an important field. I think that the largest cause of disability in the world is depression. Mm -hmm. There's no reason to choose between your two suggestions. Mm. Both of them must be pursued, both of them. All the variations in the parameters of administering ketamine that might enhance its effectiveness have to be explored. And all new agents that show promise have to be researched and investigated. But we have to proceed according to evidence. We have to be very wary of the latest and greatest where both safety and efficacy is concerned. We have to be very wary of listening to people who stand to profit from what they tell you. Right. But both of your suggestions have to be pursued. Yeah, I think it's a very, very exciting time and there's so much um, uh, R&D going on and you know, big people coming into the space and um, it's, it's interesting. Uh, we'll have to see. I, I, I don't really know. I, I think that obviously you have MDMA and psilocybin and there's huge variability in protocols, uh, with these things and doses. And there's so many different, uh, factors to take into consideration. You can have, uh, quite, uh, quite extensive uh, research on any one substance, let alone, um, you know, multiple, um, I think we'll definitely see people having synthetic psilocybin versus, you know, maybe more naturally grown and extracted and you'll see differences in how it might be, um, you know, manipulated to potentially have longer acting, shorter acting, maybe different routes of administration, maybe home home use versus in the clinic. There's there's a lot uh, that, that can be, uh, and I'm sure that will be explored. And uh, it's, you know, time will tell. It's gradually emerging from the criminal system and become a legitimate object of study is very promising. We must be doing this responsibly, but we can't be doing it hiding from the authorities for fear that our licenses and our livelihoods will be in jeopardy because it's a verboten substance. Wow. Yeah, that's that's a phenomenal, remarkable, incredible. Uh, I wish that we could keep this podcast going forever, but uh, the good news is I'm definitely going to be sending you guys an invitation very soon uh, to come back on, on the show, and uh, we're going to continue this conversation. Um, just one of the things I look forward to in our conversation next time is uh, yeah, the fact that there are so many other psychedelic tools in the toolkit and, and there's really no reason that they have to be used um you know they have to be used uh, exclusively like there could be a future in which uh, some patients might benefit from for example ketamine immediately because we immediately have to treat acute suicidality um but then we could use something like mdma uh, a, a week, a month, or a year down the line, if and when they need it. And so these combinations of uh, psychedelic drugs used in treatment uh, really opens up hopefully a much brighter and successful mental health uh, treatment and future for the, the field of mental health treatment, you know, uh, moving forward. So, uh, you know, um, before we hop off, and uh, I just wanted to give both you, Sam, and uh, Dr. Mandel, the opportunity to do that right now. Uh, so the floor is yours, and please go ahead and uh, take a moment to do that. Uh, ketamine is truly amazing. Uh, when it's done responsibly in a clinical setting, it, it really is the fastest acting, safest, uh, most effective antidepressant available today. We want people to know about it. It, you don't have to choose it for you. Uh, 
you don't have to come to our clinic, but everyone should know that this is an option and that it exists. And um, thank you for having us. And uh, I will let Dr. Mandel have the last word. Amazing. Thank you, Sam. Yeah, nice. It's been a privilege to speak with you. I, I don't know how to sum up what we've spoken about for over an hour <laughs> in, in a little cute comment. This is a life-saving drug. It's freely available, at least in the United States. Don't let any preconceptions keep you from finding your way to it if you are suffering from depression or suicidality or PTSD. Get on the phone, get on the internet, ask your family doctor, your psychiatrist, your therapist. Don't suffer. It's optional now. Don't do it. Wow. Uh, both Dr. Mandel and Sam, really, truly, it's been a, a pleasure and a privilege to, uh, to sit and speak with you both. I am truly honored and grateful that you guys made the time to come on my show and uh, to come talk with, uh, to me, to our audience and share this, uh, share so much about this remarkable work that you guys are doing. Uh, Dr. Mandel, wow, the fact that you were one of the first people to use this in practice uh, is really something else, you know, is, is really truly, amazing you know and as a scientist myself uh i i just have to say that this has been a really special moment in my career and a really special moment for me and my time at microdose uh, I'm, I'm so grateful to have, have the uh, opportunity i've been given to speak with uh, the people i have and and uh, be able to record the show and uh, like i said there's there's only been a couple of moments that since i started recording sci-fi where i can really mark a, a time during the episode and say i got a little emotional you know and and this this is one of this has been one of those episodes you know and uh, it, it's one i'm sure i i won't be uh, forgetting about or stopping to talk about anytime soon you know uh i really look forward to the next one thank you guys both of you so much for joining me and then all of us over here at microdose uh, we're also grateful for you thank you so much thank you garab thank you it was good to be with you and yes. uh, thank you all so much for joining us for uh, what was a remarkable and truly phenomenal episode of sci-fi uh we're all really grateful to Sam and Dr. Stephen Mandel for joining us. And uh, yeah, this has been another episode of the Sci-Fi Podcast where we talk to leading industry experts, clinicians, and researchers to unravel the mystery that is psychedelic science. Uh, we hope you'll all join us next time. Uh, Sam and Dr. Stephen Mandel will have them on again very soon to talk about ketamine therapeutics. And uh, until next time, I hope you all are well. See you soon. Thanks for joining the Sci-Fi Series, brought to you by Microdose and The Conscious Fund. Visit our website at www.microdose.buzz.